Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, may I begin by saying how honored I feel to be invited to speak before the Royal Aeronautical Society and that I am very grateful for the opportunity to give a report on the works and activities of Dawn Gears. It is hardly possible within the narrow scope of a lecture to include any exhaustive and detailed discussion of the development and research work accomplished by the Dornier concern in post-war years. Instead, I shall try to give you an idea of some of the work performed or still underway, which may perhaps reveal characteristics which are typical of our working conditions and methods. I have to confine myself largely to the work done by Dornierwerke. That of our different subsidiaries cannot be regarded here, nor is it possible to spend any thought on the many and significant contributions and efforts made by other companies. Looking back today at the period whose beginning was marked by the political and economic reorganization which followed by the Second World War, the tremendous chances that have characterized aeronautical engineering, in particular during the past ten years, commands the greatest respect and admiration. The significance of new technical possibilities has been realized in Great Britain very early, and British research establishments and industries have had a considerable share in the progress made, so that you know the facts from first-hand experience. The German share and contribution to general aeronautical, aeronautical development by German companies compare but very modestly with the British record. This is, of course, due to the post-war conditions, which prevented any industrial activities in the field of aeronautics in West Germany about ten years ago, following ten years of complete aeronautical blackout. Gondier's ability to resume aeronautical development was seriously limited by irreparable personal, material, and financial loss. There seemed to be no prospect in developing new projects which would enter into direct competition with existing and well-marked types of aircraft. Plans to build big airplanes, perhaps utilizing specialist know-how, and cooperating with foreign countries proved at that time impracticable. Real development prospects 
seemed contingent upon real technical progress, preferably in previously neglected areas. This is why Dornier's post-war efforts were focused on those principles of design and configuration which may be summed up as follows. First, the greatest possible operational flexibility for use over a wide range of transport and utility missions. That means general purpose aircraft. Second, reduction of takeoff and landing distances such that operation is to some extent unrestricted by airfield lengths. Third, the greatest possible safety in all flying and operational conditions. The single-engine DO-25 aircraft was the first to be built after the war. She made her maiden flight in 1954. Designed in Madrid to a specification issued by the Spanish Ministry of Aviation, the aircraft was built by CASA. The aircraft was powered by a, by a Spanish Elizalde Tiger engine of 150 horsepower, equipped with a ground-adjustable two-blade propeller. The design weight was 2,400 pounds. For takeoff over 50 feet obstacle, a distance of about two, uh, 720 feet was required. Maximum speed 100 knots. A typical mission provided for a crew of four with fuel tankage for about two flying hours. Installation of the Continental engine rating 225 horsepower resulted in the DO-25 P2C which was equipped with dual controls and tailwheel steering. The increased engine rating led to an increase in weight from 2,400 pounds to 2,800 pounds and in forward speed to 125 knots. <coughs> Her immediate successor was the DO-27, which was developed directly from the DO-25 and designed for quantity production. The DO-27 is a single-engine high-wing monoplane. Her cantilever rectangular wings are provided with a full-span fixed-slat, double-slotted flaps and ailerons. The design was aimed particularly at manufacturing simplicity and robustness. The aeroplane's flexibility and its suitability for operations in tropical and arctic conditions was enhanced by the adoption of all metal construction with metal skinning of the fuselage and wings. The DO-27 has been built 
in a number of variants differing mainly in engine power and takeoff weight and in equipment. The wing area, as on the DO25, is 209 square feet and the aspect ratio 7.42. The standard all-up weight is 3,860 pounds. Certification is based on CAR Part 3. Depending on role, up to six persons may be accommodated and the range is about 420 nautical miles. Without or 750 nautical miles with additional tankage. A total of some 580 DO-27 aircraft have so far been built and sold and have given a good account of themselves in the general purpose role both in the German Bundeswehr and as small transport and utility aircraft serving numerous enterprises in Germany as well as in foreign and overseas lands. This is with supercharged engines. Picture. Next slide, please. This is when taking off. Next slide. Uh, please, uh, this is small slide away. Now I turn to the twin engine DO28. Uh, this is a DO27C version. Next slide, please. Number eight. Number eight uh, of the small slide. And the next large slide, please. In marketing the DO27 aircraft, we have been able by direct contact to explore the needs and possibilities the structure and the scope of business aviation in different countries. It was soon realized that over a wide and unpredictable range of flying conditions and roles in bad weather conditions and allowing for engine failure, a successful mission must be guaranteed. This meant the provision of multiple engine blind flying capability and de-icing. Bearing in mind the fulfillment of these requirements in the shortest possible time and with as little technical effort and risk as possible, the twin-engine DO-28 was developed and built based upon DO-27 structural components. This six to eight seat airplane has a wing area of 240 square feet with an aspect ratio of 8.5. The two engines are mounted on horizontal pylons at the front fuselage. Please next slide, last. The first variant built, the DO-28 Type A was equipped with two times 255 horsepower Lycoming engines, limiting the all-up weight to 5,400 pounds. 
Following several years of quantity production, the DO28 type B was launched, with which for better single engine and takeoff performances increased flight safety and higher takeoff weight has increased installed power, 290 horsepower, using the Lycoming fuel injection engine. This aircraft has a ground roll of 500, 590 feet with a total takeoff distance to clear 50 feet obstacle of 890 feet. Maximum speed 163 knots. Minimum speed 36 knots. Range according to roll 400 nautical miles to 500 nautical miles. All up weight 6,000 pounds. Next last slide, please. This shows the DO28 with keys. Next slide, please. This is the aircraft with fuel injection engine. Next slide, please. This is again the version A. Some 60 aircraft of this type have been sold so far, and there is a current output of about three aircraft per month. Next slide, please. This is the version with floats. Please, next slide. As a further addition to the range of our utility aircraft, we are developing at present the DO28 Type D, using all the experience gained with the DO28 version. Her all-up weight is 7,700 pounds, and she will be powered by two like coming engines rated at 385 horsepower each. The wing area is 300 square feet with an aspect ratio of 8.05. The speed at maximum continuous power is 172 knots. Range without additional tanks and depending on power setting up to 950 nautical miles. The takeoff distance over 50 feet is 831 feet with 500 feet ground run. Total landing distance 769 feet. Next slide, please. A low selling price was one of the prime objectives for this aeroplane. Ease of manufacture, so far as aerodynamically justifiable, has been the dominant consideration from the very beginning. The standard design provides for the accommodation of six people together with luggage and cold storage for flight up to maximum range. Reduced range permit seating of up to 12 passengers. The removal of passenger seats 
results in a cargo capacity of some 265 cubic feet. The certification is based on CAR Part 3, normal category. Next slide, please. I'll turn now to some investigations into the reduction of takeoff and landing distance by slipstream deflection. One of the most important problems in aviation lies in the achievement of short takeoff and landing performance. This may, to some extent, be obtained by reductions in wing loading, increase in engine thrust, and raising the maximum lift coefficient by conventional means, for instance, double clouded or smaller flat, flat, and so on, as applied to the DO-27 and DO-28 aircraft. The use of airscrew slipstream for lift augmentation may further reduce the takeoff and landing distances and permit lower minimum speed, widening the economical important range between the minimum and maximum speed. In past years, Dornier's research effort in the field of high lift and SDOL technique have been concentrated on lift augmentation by propeller tilting, as in the case of the DO-29, and slipstream deflection by means of suitable flaps. This slide shows the DO-29 during takeoff. Using DO-27 structural components, the DO-29 is an aircraft designed purely for test purposes, characterized by air screws tilting 90 degrees downward, a connecting shaft system between the two engines, and high core double plotted flaps. Next slide, please. Wind tunnel and flight tests proved the feasibility of thrust vectoring and direct control of the gradient of descent. Despite the fact that the installed engine power of 2 times 270 horsepower was rather low in comparison to the all-up weight of 5,500 pounds, the DO-29's Flight characteristics were already bordering on the limits defined by elevator effectiveness. The problems of propellers operating under extremely inclined airflow conditions were also studied during the development of this aircraft. Next slide, please. On this slide, you see the flow visualization. Uh, this gives a, shows you slope of the flow through the propeller. Next slide, please. This shows the DO-29 during landing approach. Next slide, please. And this away, please, the large one. Slipstream deflection by means of flaps 
was studied with the aim of finding the simplest possible air-screw wing flap configuration, permitting the greatest possible lift augmentation. There was one particular problem in that for the landing approach, high lift coefficients had to be achieved in combination with high drag coefficients so as to obtain a sufficiently steep gradient. This required a slipstream deflection up to the range of drag generation. Comprehensive research work resulted in the development of flap systems which represent a good compromise between structural and kinematic simplicity on the one hand and deflection and supercirculation effect on the other. For example, double-slotted flaps with an additional slot in the trailing section proved effective. Compared with this arrangement, triple-slotted flaps offered no advantages even with only small airflow velocities. The possibilities of normal double-slotted flaps with a blow-out device were also studied. It was found, however, that this arrangement does not provide the same airflow deflection as the double-slotted flaps with an additional rear slot. Here on this slide, uh, <coughs> you see some wind tunnel tests done by a, by a model for a SDOL aircraft. Model tests measurements showed maximum lift coefficients occurring with flaps down 90 degrees and angles of attack of some 34 degrees. Irrespective of this just dynamic pressure ratio, the maximum lift coefficients produced flight path gradients of up to 15 degrees. It was possible to obtain for a just weight ratio of between 0.5 and 0.6 and with a relatively high wing loading, <coughs> minimum flight speeds permitting steep gradient full throttle landings without flare-outs. The advantages of this type of landing are obvious. Not only is the landing distance reduced, but the predetermined touchdown point may also be Currently attained. This is also important for blind and bad weather landing. The necessary controls adjustment has been taken care of by a gyroscopically stabilized sighting device developed by Dornier. Landing tests flown so far produced maximum deviations from the predetermined touchdown point of only plus minus four meters. Thanks to this system and 
the use of high lift generation by slipstream deflection, the landing performance of aircraft may be considerably improved by relatively simple means. A comparison of the two prin principal possibilities of high lift generation studied, that means propeller tilting or flap slipstream deflection, showed that for true hovering without wind, propeller tilting was the better solution with better deflection effectiveness. However, slipstream deflection flaps performed better under the same thrust dynamic pressure conditions when there was wind. <coughs> Thus, judging by results obtained so far, air screw slipstream deflection by means of suitable flaps represents the most favorable solution for SGOL aircraft uh, only in case, of course, with the use of propellers. Next slide, please. <coughs> Any practical application of high lift augmentation by slipstream deflection is conditional upon service reliability at least equivalent to the safety level of conventional aircraft currently in operation. In addition to a simple and failure-proof longitudinal control effective control effective over the whole speed range, adequate power and control reserves must ensure that in the case of an engine failure, there are no undesirable or uncontrollable flight movements. It is the failure probability of not only the engine, which must be accounted for, but also that of the air screws, possibly also the shafts, gears, clutches, and so on. Several possible configurations have been compared in view of their facial probabilities. This slide shows the effect of the loss of thrust from one air screw upon total thrust available, resulting in jaw moments and the prevalent facial probabilities. It is clear that with the present facial probabilities of engines and so on, the general configuration chosen may have a considerable influence on the safety of the aircraft. Any possible reduction beyond that obtained to date in the statistical probability of critical failure, that means double failure or air screw failure, judging by experience made, may be arrived at by an unconventional overall configuration. In this slide, we tried to show 
a different region that could occur due, uh, due to the chosen configuration. This time here may <coughs> be represented for a normal 2-engine or 4-engine uh, aircraft with normal takeoff. If, for instance, the power is increased and the configuration <coughs> is uh, the same, uh, due to the, uh, in, in case of the picture, the moment will be unacceptable. For instance, uh, this corresponds to the same configuration. It would be not acceptable. Uh, this region may be acceptable but poor, and this region would be good. Here is the probability of nature of engine of, of the propeller. And here are the configurations we discussed. For instance, uh, this picture shows that the configuration here by uh, connecting shaft will lead to, to maybe acceptable level of the danger, but uh, it's still uh, relatively poor. And if uh, one wants a much better danger uh, safety, one has to other. Next slide, please. May I now turn to another point? We have made our first excursion into the domain of rotary wing aircraft on the single-seater DO-32 helicopter. This helicopter was designed for operations including shipborne use and has the following characteristics. High safety, especially in the case of engine failure, ease of handling, low maintenance requirements, robust and simple con construction. Despite the poor efficiency of tip drive compared to shaft drive, this system was chosen to avoid anti-torque and drive shaft, clutches, free wheels and gears. The absence of the anti-torque rotor greatly simplifies the control of a tip-drive helicopter. The high rotor inertia stores kinetic energy in the blades, permitting overload jump takeoff and providing a higher degree of safety for auto-rotational landing. The helicopter is powered by a 100 horsepower BMW turbine with an additional air compressor, all up weight being 600 pounds and rotor disc area loading 
1.32 pounds per square feet. DO32 can be folded and stored away in a small container from which she can be readied for operation within a few minutes. Next slide, please. The <coughs> flight characteristics of this helicopter have been rated very good by all pilots who have flown her. Piloting is very comparatively easy due in particular to the independence of rotor speed and turbine speed, making constant rotor speed checks superfluous. Tests have been completed in a great variety of climatic conditions. In conjunction with this development, it had been possible to investigate theoretically and experimentally such features as the heat transfer conditions of a tip drive helicopter rotor blade as well as the Coriolis effect on rotor blade pressure drops. The experience gained and results and data elaborated in the framework of our first helicopter development will be utilized for new projects envisaged. Slide, please. The working preconditions, which were very poor when activities were taken up again, had to be adapted to technical progress and to the scope of the technical effort required. This called above all for improved personal and material conditions such as appropriate increase in personal recruiting, training and specialization of young engineers and technicians, staff top positions and providing successors. The tedious process of forming a proficient development team and creating an effective organizational structure for it had to be gone through as well as that of ensuring a good and healthy working atmosphere. To solve these personal and organizational problems, we organized the entire concern decentrally and assigned to its subsidiaries part of which work with their own responsibility, detached and self-contained spheres of activity. The Dornier concern as a whole has at its disposal a number of development and manufacturing plants, mostly of pre-war existence, situated in different areas. A company-owned airfield near Munich is used for flight testing. The location of the different plants in southern Germany is of particular importance in view of recruiting suitable personnel. A total of 4,500 personnel are employed at present in the plants, including subsidiaries. This number being about 10 times that of 10 years ago. I will leave out to deal with special work we did on the flutter analysis 
development of stress analysis techniques and aerodynamic investigations to determine the buffeting limits and the operation research. And I will proceed with some hints on the development we are now uh, under, uh, uh, do in our development plans. Next slide, please. From 1957 to 1959, Dornier were developing projects, project designs for a VTOL transport and studying different methods of obtaining VTOL. In 1961, Jetlift, using the composite power plant configuration, was selected as the most promising solution and the company was authorized by contract of the German Ministry of Defense to start the development of the DO-31. The choice of an engine system made up of jet propulsion engines for normal flight and additional lift engines for hovering flight was determined by the following considerations. First, high safety, particularly in the case of engine failure. Second, high speed and productivity. Third, great mission flexibility. Four, the possibility of utilizing the wide general experience accumulated upon jet aircraft. Five, great development potential arising out of future advanced advances in ancient technology. Six, possibility of ancient standardization based upon the use of lift engines common to a number of other types of aircraft. Seven, the ready availability, the background of experience and the great development potential of these engines, particularly as regards further improvements in the thrust weight ratio and reduction of size and volume. The combination of Rolls-Royce lift engines, the foundation for the development of which was laid with great foresight by Dr. Griffith of Rolls-Royce, with the lift thrust engine principle, pioneered by Bristol Sidley, and successfully used in the Hawker P1127 will make the DO31 concept highly adaptable in its various roles. The relatively large number of engines installed. It is necessary to apply the control power about the different axes 
but that with sufficient moment for action and control about each axis, the total shaft loss is reduced to a minimum. The individual control devices having differing service properties and limits, they have to be adjusted to one another and to the individual demands put to them. Coupling must be avoided as far as possible. Next slide. This shows, it's a very bad slide, uh, shows uh, a wind tunnel model in our own VTOS wind tunnel. In hovering flight, VTOL aircraft have no natural damping or stability. The control system, therefore, forms an integral part of the aircraft and requires very close investigation and optimization of the whole aircraft control system. This investigation includes determination of aircraft dynamics from calculated and measured data, data processing for flight testing, investigation of human factors, review of reliability and methods of improvement, design of redundant systems, System designs for automatic takeoff and landing, and for blind landing with minimum terrain preparation. Methods of reducing the data <coughs> presented to one pilot, since a considerable strain is already put on the pilot in controlling the large number of engines. Advanced electronic techniques are of great promise in this area. Next slide. The techniques used ex and experience gained in these investigations will find application over a wide range and area. We have found the use of a simulator to be of great value here. The equipment which we are used, which, which we, excuse me, which we are using comprises both analog and digital computers which are being combined in a so-called hybrid system. The pilot is included via display and cockpit. Comprehensive studies have been carried out to calculate the briefest possible transition flight path. Of course, there are some problems with the VTOL planes. Uh, one problem, well-known problem, is the jet interference. Secondary air is entrained away by the high-energy jet efflux from the engines 
inducing an airflow that may produce aerodynamic forces in moments on the aircraft. The aerodynamic effects are closely dependent upon aircraft configuration and vary with ground clearance, wind velocity and direction and time. Engine performance is affected by intake temperature. Consequently, research is necessary with a few to eliminate eliminating the undesirable effects of hot gas recirculation. We are investigating the problems of local heating due to the convection or thermal radiation of components near the engine jets. It may become necessary for some of these components to be protected by heat shields or to be made from heat-proof materials such as titanium alloys. As part of these investigations, model tests with simulated temperatures have already been run in our VGOL low-speed wind tunnel. Further study and tests are needed to evaluate the effects on a variety of different ground surfaces of jet impingement during takeoff and landing to assess the resulting erosion, the possibilities of surface, surface reinforcement techniques, the use of jet deflection and of low forward speed in the elevation of ground erosion. For reasons of time and cost, investigations into these aerodynamic and thermal phenomena are usually restricted to model tests. This highlights the importance of developing the appropriate model test techniques and of extending our knowledge of the reality reliability of these tests and of correlation factors. Comparison of model data with full-scale measurements obtained on our, our so-called small hovering rigs, which is designed for control system tests, are being made at the present time. This slide shows you small models of this you will see later in another slide. Next slide, please. The high energy noise level produced by the engines necessitates special provisions for the elimination of structural fatigue for noise suppression and for the functional reliability and the required service life of equipment and instruments in a high-noise environment. 
Developing a jet aircraft requires consideration being given to sonic effects from the very beginning. This slide shows our noise laboratory with a random diving. Also, theoretical approaches are there. The full evaluation of sonic effects <coughs> requires additional system tests. Initially, in collaboration with Bristol Sidley, we have run sonic fatigue tests with original engines, measuring airframe stresses and sonic characteristics. That means distribution of intensity versus frequency as a function of engine rotation. A special noise laboratory has been set up to facili <coughs> facilitate the planning and realization of tests under laboratory conditions. Mention is made of only one partial result of tests tests run. Next slide, please. This is again the laboratory. After a <coughs> relatively brief noise impingement, micro cracks could be observed at all spots of a spot welded pin, proving the particular high energy noise sensitivity of spot welding. Next slide. This is uh, one of our computers. Next slide, please. In the scope of the DO31 program, experiments have been made by means of a hovering control test rig to assess the control and stability of DOL aircraft. These experiments helped to clarify the essential control problems and showed that aircraft configurations similar to the DO-31 have rather favorable hovering flight characteristics. For the evaluation of measurements, methods of statistical system theory proved very effective for the processing of flight test data. The frequency spectra of controls and aircraft movements have been found by means of the correlation method. The frequency spectra permits assessment of the pilot's efforts for different types of control. As expected, the smallest manual efforts are those demanding from the pilot using an attitude control system, enabling him to fulfill other tasks at the same time. The tests made in their evaluation show that an aircraft similar to the DO-31 may probably be flown also manually without auto stabilization. The necessary frequency spectrum 
of the control movement still lies within the limits of a good pilot may be reasonably expected to cope with. Next slide, please. On the rig, we had installed for Rolls-Royce 108 engines and uh, the control and stabilization system of the rig is fully representative of the aircraft system. The inboard engine serves as lift jets <coughs> and furnish the bleed air for the pitch control nozzles in the rear. The outboard engines are used for roll control by differential thrust shuttle. Slide, please. It seems well in place to indicate here that in conjunction with the DO-31 program, particularly close contacts to the British industry and British research establishments have developed in many areas. It should also be mentioned that British efforts and supplies have considerably contributed to the realization of the DO-31 program. With your permission, I would like to say some words in respect of the international collaboration. One of the great technical efforts to be achieved in our age, we are convinced, is the construction of aircraft that may operate independent of runways and with greatest possible service reliability. Dornier have been and are orientating their efforts in this direction. The technical possibilities of solving the problems set may probably not be foreseen in all their details as yet. <coughs> and in order to succeed in this tall order, science and technology will be faced with new and exciting demands and efforts. It is therefore safe to assume that this endeavor and results obtained will give new momentum to progress in many fields and have a vertical influence also on other <coughs> areas and domains of technology, industry, and commerce. The problems posed are of general concern and interest. Uh, sorry, concern and interest are at stake are common. So much so 
that this particular development is increasingly transforming into a problem which invites for its solution international collaboration. The close ties of any development in aviation to science and research, which are intrinsically international, and the aeroplane's function of bridging time and space contribute to the fact that the development of the STOL aircraft offer particularly free water and various preconditions for an even close our business relations with foreign companies, in particular with a number of British firms, have over the past few years indicated encouraging possibilities for a European cooperation and have shown the high degree of conformity of the objectives and aims to be reached which work still outstanding. We hope that this common outlook on technical questions, the growing mutual trust and the deepening personal friendships will prepare the way for a future common action in areas where potentially promising development projects would surpass the financial possibilities of one country working on its own, or where such cooperation would ensure a more economical use of national resources and possibilities. I would like to show you now a film showing the different aircraft with had manufactured in the last 10 years. I should like to express my profound gratitude to the Royal Aeronautical Society for the opportunity I was offered to lecture about the research and development work accomplished by Dornier in post-war years. Perhaps some of these efforts would be of interest in view of an international collaboration as indicated. I hope that I have succeeded in proving that this work has been pursued in the spirit corresponding to the traditions established during half a decade of aircraft development. I should like to take this opportunity and extend my sincere thanks to all those who contributed to the reconstruction of the Dornier worker and who helped in the preparation of this lecture. Thank you very much. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, uh, late Hawker Siddeley Aviation, We've had in the society a number of lectures by distinguished engineers from Europe 
now and I feel that this one is contributing greatly to the uh, success of such papers. Um, I think it's very valuable to us in this country to have uh, distinguished engineers from overseas to talk to us, not only for the, from a technical viewpoint, uh, but also to give us some insight um, into how they go about their work, how they approach things, and their general philosophy. Now, this, of course, is particularly important these days when collaboration is, um, is mentioned, is becoming more necessary. Uh, we do have to get to know each other. I should like to uh, congratulate Herr Dornier on his excellent paper and particularly his presentation. I think there are not many of us who would contemplate with equanimity going to a European country and delivering a paper there in the language of that country. It seems to me, first of all, that we must recognize that Dornier, in something like ten years, have come from literally nothing through a series of airplanes starting small and relatively simple uh, to a degree of competence which is uh, to be matched against anything in the world in that particular area of work. Uh, not only has the technical side been achieved, uh, there has been, I'm sure, the problem of building up a team and getting it to work satisfactorily as a team. It so happens that um, at Bruff we did have some slight uh, dealings with Mrs. Dornier. I think it must be about six years ago, and I don't know whether our present lecturer is aware of this, but we did see the DO-27. Um, I was impressed with this aeroplane because it seemed to me that it poured very good engineering development, very careful thinking into what was on the face of it a quite straightforward concept and it produced a, a, a jolly useful aeroplane. Uh, we saw from the film how it flies. My keenest recollection is that it went up like a lift. In fact, I, I, I was just saying to myself, I hope the fire truck is there. Um, and whether you thought that the speed of the film was adjusted or not, uh, and, and I know it wasn't, but if you thought it was, at least the uh, climb angle wasn't, and that aeroplane was most impressive in its takeoff and landing manoeuvres. Now, from that, and using this philosophy of developable aeroplane, has produced the, the twin-engine version. I, I should like to ask in this discussion, first of all, if uh, Herr Dornier still attempts and perhaps succeeds in producing aeroplanes which you can, how shall I put it, cut about and add on extra engines and really develop in this way, 
because so many of other rather more specialised aircraft one finds it very, very difficult to change in any appreciable way once you have the airplane. And so I, I would like to hear some more from him on his thoughts as to how to keep aircraft um, developable in this way. Perhaps it's a feature of transport aeroplanes. The, um, the DO-29 showed um, to me, some surprisingly high lift coefficients, and uh, uh, to begin with, uh, uh, like the boy who first saw the giraffe, I said I didn't believe it, but then of course I realised that uh, if you are sitting on propellers with no forward speed, then CL is, um, is not really a very reliable quantity. Um, I was very interested to note that the engine failure problem had been thought about. Um, and I, I, I couldn't quite understand the figures for this reason, that if you do have a propeller here and a propeller there, then you can think of some kind of failure to this propeller so that it, it isn't there anymore at all. And uh, it seemed to me that uh, probably the uh, chance of that occurring, the 10 to the minus 8 or whatever it was, uh, it might perhaps be an optimistic way of looking at this theoretical failure that I am thinking of, which causes one propeller not to be there anymore. But perhaps even more important, uh, relative to this aeroplane, um, it seemed to me that you had gone on Herdonier to the DO-31, which did away with the propellers. And um, I, I wondered if you felt, uh, I wondered what the reason was for going from something which seemed rather simpler than lift engines, uh, there are fewer parts in the airplane, and if you can make propellers work as well as I thought you were doing, then... I wondered why this had not gone on as a development. The, um, the DO-31 is, of course, uh, a very fascinating aeroplane and is the subject uh, work of this type and the subject of collaboration with us in Hawker Sidley. Um, I shall not say anything about this because there are others, uh, notably Mr. Clarkson, who can speak better on this than I can. Um, but I, I did want to ask just one question about your, your rig. Um, it, it didn't have the BS100 engines, it merely had the lift engines. And uh, I, I wondered why you hadn't put the BS100 in as well as the lift engines. Finally, the... Um, If I could ask a question uh, about the makeup of the staff in your group, um, you have covered a very considerable range of aircraft in this period of time. Uh, if it is not an impertinent question, what proportion of your total staff in the factory are engineers? 
and sense what proportion are doing other work. Uh, those, I think, are all the points I would like to mention. Thank you, Mr. President. <coughs> May I deal <coughs> first with the question of the DO28 <coughs> development? Of course, um, uh, to make aircrafts means to make compromise. And uh, we we are well aware that we we made some compromise with the DO28, but we tried to make uh, a two-engine aircraft in a relatively short time with less technical risk, and so we tried to to add two engines on, on it. And it proved to be a very suitable aircraft. Now, turning to the DO-29, <coughs> I would like to say that this aircraft is purely an experimental one. It was never decided to build such an aircraft in uh, as for operational purposes was only the purpose was to study the special problems of tilting the propellers and, uh, and uh, finding out what angle of uh, glide path you can get and uh, what other problems would be involved <coughs> in a solution like this. Uh, if you remember my slide where I showed different regions of facial probability and uh, jaw moment, uh, I tried to show that a version with two engines and even if the engines are coupled, would never be acceptable for civil purpose as far as the engines uh, have their present failure probability. I try to point out that to, to make a aircraft with propellers safe enough, one would need at least four engines and four propellers and a connecting shaft, or uh, one should uh, arrive to unconventional solutions that are not yet uh, in existence. The question why we turn to the DO31 concept, that means to the concept with lift engines and thrust engines, I think I tried to, to say that this was, uh, there, there was a lot of, uh, there were uh, different uh, reasons for this. 
and uh, the total if if we uh, we we try to took into account all the different uh, aspects and we found that for this special purpose uh, a combination of lift engines and thrust engines would be very very good and we think that we trust on the capability of the engine companies to make the engines lighter and uh, smaller and we feel that uh, with this contact we would arrive to very very uh, acceptable solution. Now <clears throat> there was the question why we didn't use the, the Bristol BS100. I think I, I, I doubt whether the BS100 would be available, uh, but uh, with this small rig you saw, we tried to to uh, study the uh, control. And we tried to make it the <coughs> the uh, rig um, similar in the moments of inertia, and uh, we arrived with the with using the Rolls Royce 108. We arrived at a, a solution where we could find out all the things we would like to, to know. And I can say that this trick had proved very successfully and we are very happy that our government uh, was uh, prepared to pay for it. <laughs> I think the problems with the government are very similar in <laughs> all over the world maybe now there's the question of uh, our staff uh, I think I, I'm not able to give very detailed information but I think it is fair to assume that about 15% of the total employees would be involved in the in the engineering and design and project work and so on. Hey, Daniel, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I am only speaking here <coughs> because I am one of a small number of people in the room who have had the unique opportunity and the great pleasure of collaborating with Herr Dornier and his team. Um, I would like to um, I, I, I would like to repeat what Mr. Late said. Uh, I think uh, what great courage Herr Dornier has to 
penetrate into a foreign country and deliver a lecture like that which he's heard in a foreign tongue and with such uh, evident modesty we have in the um, de Havilland division of Hawker Siddeley, the late de Havilland division of Hawker Siddeley, um, been privileged to enjoy two years of extremely close collaboration with Herr Dornia and his team. And, and I emphasize the word enjoy. It is, has been most enjoyable uh, from every point of view. Um, and as you heard him say, uh, this team which he created ten years ago has um, multiplied tenfold in ten years, and he is responsible for that. <clears throat> and he is responsible for gathering and fostering and creating the astonishingly high quality of the people in that team. <clears throat> it is exhilarating to work uh, with the Dornier uh, research and development team. Uh, it is delightful uh, to enjoy their warm-hearted hospitality uh, it's hospitality uh, of, a, of a high order. Um, I have seen members of my staff hurrying down to London Airport with a pair of ski boots. <laughs> <laughs> and subsequently I've seen them on crutches hobbling around <laughs> the front. Um I think that it um, uh, was rather a remarkable thing uh, for Herr Donner and his team, having carried the development of, of high uh, CLMAX, having carried the development of achieving high CLMAX to a very high pitch and with considerable imagination, um, to switch overnight from that straight into jetlift BTOL. And I think it's a very great credit to them that they have picked the right BTOL. <laughs> um, and, and I think, um, I think I'm right in saying with the Dornier Company, they stand rather alone. They're, they're a bit of a lone wolf in Germany. And they're not grouped or in any other way sort of um, um, <clears throat> combined. And I think it um, is a remarkable thing that the German government had such supreme confidence uh, in Herr Dornier and his team that they back them in making this tremendous plunge out of uh, 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 STOL into jetlift VTOL. And um, the airplane which he has described to you, I think it is fair to say, 
but it is the first uh, full-scale jet lift aeroplane with operational characteristics on either side of the Atlantic and therefore anywhere in the world um, I would like to endorse very heartily the remarks uh, that Herr Dornier made at the end of his lecture on the subject of international collaboration and I do so um, uh, from the experience of um, what is to us of Hatfield uh, a, 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 a very fruitful and extremely uh, um, productive and, in, uh, and promising collaboration and uh, I would like to include uh, the members of my staff, some of who are here present uh, with me, when I know they would wish to be included with me, when I say that we have the, the greatest admiration for the courage and imagination of Herr Dornier and his team. Name Chris Smith from Brussels, Sydney, London. Mr. President, um, Chairman, um, I'd like to, to add my congratulations to uh, uh, Dornia for um, in such a most interesting paper and being able to put it across so well um, in English. Um, I'd like to clear one possible um, misunderstanding which may have arisen in this term of um, the BS-100 engine, uh, which uh, Mr. Late mentioned. I think if he had said BS-53 or Pegasus engine, there might have been a different answer from uh, Hedonia in the development of the hovering rig, which he may perhaps like to refer to. Um, I would also like to endorse um, the very a happy relationship in working with Dornier's which we have experienced from Bristol and uh, it was encouraging to hear um, how much uh, Herr Dornier looks forward to this close cooperation in the future with, um, with other British firms which um, when we read so much about the um, drive which uh, America is making in Germany with the big aircraft concerns in Germany. Um, it's encouraging to hear that uh, there is a great um, a feeling towards wanting to collaborate with, uh, with us and other European countries. And just one question I'd like to ask Edwina, and that is, since the concept of the, originally of the DO31 as a a VTO and STO transport. I wonder whether there has been any sort of rethinking in whether a true VTO transport or uh, an STO transport is 
is more likely to be the um, aircraft uh, which which will be developed. Originally, VTO was the, the the whole thing, but there's been a trend recently on bigger aircraft to make STO a more practicable and perhaps less costly thing. And uh, I'd be interested in to hear the Dornier's views on any later thinking in this respect. Thank you. <coughs> uh, <coughs> we, we are building a massive hovering rig with the original size of the actual aircraft and this hovering rig will have two Pegasus engines. Regarding the question of STOL uh, versus VTOL planes, <coughs> I think it might be right that this would be a question of the size of the aircraft. I think those who have seen a vertical takeoff plane take off will probably agree with me that this looks very natural. And I feel that on the 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 aim the the aim will be the true video plane may be for a certain aircraft or certain types of aircraft <coughs> there will be an intermediate STOL version. But I think if the fuel consumption will be down, uh, true VTOL planes uh, will, should be built. <laughs> In view of your experience with the tilting propeller engine, why did you go to the straight lift engine as opposed to the tilting engine? Uh, <clears throat> once again, I have to to say that I think uh, there are a lot of reasons, and one one particular reason is that the performance of a jet aircraft will be much better and that the safety level of a jet aircraft could be much higher. And uh, I think as other companies try to make it by tilting, we leave it to them. <laughs> interested in undercarriage strength. There have been a lot of discussions on this with regard to VTO airplanes, and I wonder what uh, Andromeda's comments were on this, what he feels is that it's been desirable figure to design your undercarriage model. I'm afraid I cannot say much on, on this uh, special point. We, we try to make the undercarriage very strong, and we hope for the best. As I mentioned before, we did about 200 flights with this rig. I don't know whether you have flown it, but 
well, uh, some English pilots had flown it, and uh, we had no problems with this. But of course, uh, maybe there are, uh, if, if the weather is bad and wind influence uh, that uh, maybe there, there is a problem. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, when it was uh, proposed to ask Caledonia to come and talk to us, the British aircraft industry was in a relatively happy position. There was one major military project in full cry, and uh, two more just uh, about about to start. And uh, we've now got to the stage where all three of those are cancelled. And uh, we are left to face the facts of life. The chief facts of life are that this country can't afford to get down to the necessary competition and development in aircraft that uh, certain others, the United States and perhaps Russia, can. And as a result of that, there's just one answer. We've got to have a unit that can afford this. And Europe is a unit that can do this. For this reason, I particularly welcomed Herdoni's discussions on the collaboration with, between European industry. I feel we've got to regard ourselves as one team, one team that can beat the Americans and beat the Russians. And, uh, it's going to be a tough fight, but we've got to do it. I think Herr Dorney has talked to us, is very apt at this time, to introduce us to one aspect of German aircraft industry, and I'm sure we all would like to give him a very strong vote of thanks for coming and talking like this, in, as has already been said, in a foreign language, makes it very difficult, but uh, I think he's given an extremely interesting lecture, and uh, I'm sure we'd all like to give him a very strong vote of thanks. Happy to be in your country. I think I can say that I have some friends here. <laughs> I'm very glad. And I'm sorry that my English is so poor, I would like to be free and without a paper, but I think we have to work together for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>